middle of the res road we're your hosts morgan ricky and Alyssa. we're here to share the success stories of people who took the opportunity to join the trades and how these opportunities can be achieved by anyone looking for success our work may be seasonal but our stories don't have to be become your own success story hey everybody welcome back to middle of the res road today we have a very special guest she was recognized as the Twin Cities Top 100 People to Know in 2023. We're very excited to have her here today. Today we have Julie Lucas here with us today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me. This is, this is awesome. I do want to ask you, how, how do you get an award like that? Or how do you get recognition <laughs> for that? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Uh, honestly, when I got the email, I thought it was a scam. I had to Google it, and I was like, oh, wait, Twin Cities Business. I know this magazine. This is real. And and then I thought, and I had to double-check the email address that they actually meant to email me because that also didn't <laughs> seem right. <laughs> I think it's just, you know, I had started the role this year and was in the news because of that and a couple other things, and I, I think it was just that they – you know, the editors kept seeing me pop up and they thought, hmm, we, sh- we should figure out who this person is and maybe other people should figure out who this person is. So, but yeah, I completely thought it was a scam at first. <laughs> that must just like be an awesome feeling to be recognized for everything that you're doing. It's, um, so, you know, I know at some point we'll get into my background, but I just, if you would have told me even just a couple years ago that I'd be in this spot right now, there's not a I, I just would not have thought it. It was just three years ago this month. Um, I was going through the process of finding out I had cancer. So oh it was just gosh. like, so January 2nd, 2020, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I look at in three years or two, really, um, where my life's at now. And it's, it's just kind of a messes with your brain a little bit. So it's, it's very humbling and, and just, a little bit overwhelming, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, kudos to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so before you were the executive director of Mining Minnesota, what were what, what's a, can you take us a little bit into your background? Yeah, I will. I'm just going to actually work straight out of college, if that's okay. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Back 20 years. Um, <laughs> so I moved to the Iron Range in tw- 2002, uh, right out of grad school. And my first role was teaching at the college. I taught biology and chemistry at Masabi Range, which is now Minnesota North College's Masabi Range, I think. And um, from there, I went to work for a small consulting firm called NTS, which does environmental work. So that's how I got into doing this kind of work. Um, was there for a while. I've kind of, I've kind of, my 20s, you know, people are always like, oh, figure out what you want to be. And I'm like, you know, your 20s, you figure out what you want to be by trying a lot of different hats on. Mm -hmm. Some people find out what they want to do right away. Kudos to them. That was not me. Um, But eventually I made my way to Hibbing Taconite, which is where I spent the majority of my mining career. I was there for 13 years in the environmental team. And so that was, that's really where I got my like boots on the ground mining experience was in Taconite. Um, But then after, like I said, the cancer side quest, 
don't like the side word. quest. Side, <laughs> I don't like the word journey because that implies like I chose it. Side quest. It's more like you know video games where you're like, no, you're gonna do this. Okay. Um, so I went and you know after going through that, it was kind of one of those moments where you just step back and go, you know what do I want to do? And Twin Metals had uh, opening for director of water resources. Well, water resources, my master's degree, and Twin Metals. It's the most controversial mining project probably in the country. And water is why it's controversial. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I survived chemo. I survived a double mastectomy. I survived all of that. What else is scarier? And so I thought, I'm going to give it a shot. And so I went to Twin Metals as director of water resources. I was there for a year. And then, unfortunately, our project got canceled by the federal government. And then I just took some time. I, I told everyone, I'm like, I don't want to work for a while. I just, I need to breathe. I worked all through chemo. I worked through everything. Jeez. I was like, I just want to just figure things out. Um, so then a couple of folks that are on the Mining Minnesota board had reached out to me, and they're like, we would really love for you to join our team as the executive director. And I was like, I don't, give me time. I need time. Yeah. Um, and then they are like, are, are, you, are you done yet with this time <laughs> thing? <laughs> and your side quest? <laughs> yeah, like, are you, can you just, you know come interview with us. I was like, okay. Um, and I said, well, but you guys, you know, I looked at your job description and it's, it's, it's public relations, it's government relations. It's, I said, I'm a science person and I don't do that stuff. And they went, good. Perfect. And I was like, okay. Then. <laughs> I had my disclosure, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't have a communications degree or anything like that. So, um, yeah, so 20 years ago, I would never have guessed this is where I'd be. So my life has been a lot of series of how did I end up on the range? <laughs> and how did I end up in mining? And how did I end up in public relations? So yeah, so not um, it was not a linear thought out path, apparently. But it worked. Awesome. I mean, everything is meant to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you from originally? So I'm originally from Carleton County, so oh, okay. not that far from yeah. here. So I, I started actually in Duluth. Um, we moved when I was right before second grade. We moved down to Barnum, so I'm actually a Barnum bomber. Um, so I have to say that because I'm hoping some other of my classmates listen to this. <laughs> um, and my nieces are Barnum bombers now too. And so, yep. So my parents both live in Moose Lake now. Which, if you guys know rivalries. It's, uh, I'm struggling with my parents living in Moose no. Lake now. I mean, it's like, come on now. But, um, yeah, so I'm just down the road. Is this something that you saw yourself doing when you were – because I know you said you have a master's in – Water resources. Yeah. My, it's, my, it's my jam. Um, no, mining was not. That was and, – and some folks um, – have heard my, I call it my origin story. I have a problem with comic books, apparently. Comic books and <laughs> video games. And video. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I growing up in Barnum Moose Lake, the only mining we have are, we have gravel pits yep. and lots of agates. Um, telling your listeners to not go pick agates, sir. Um, <laughs> you have signs telling you not to. So <laughs> no experience with mining. And, but I always had environmental. I always knew Pretty early on, that environmental was, you know, I grew up with Ranger Rick. I'm going to date myself here. Although I think there still is Ranger Rick. Um, Ranger Rick and just, like, when I was little, the big push was the ozone layer and acid rain and, you know, the rainforest. Those were, those were the big topics when I was a kid. Global climate change hadn't been brought up yet. 
but it was always like that strong, like there's stuff going on again, you know, with the world and we need to fix it. And so I was always drawn to that. And so when I went to get my bachelor's degree, my bachelor's is actually biochemistry because I wanted to study how humans are affected by the environment. Mm-hmm. And because we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that when I was at HipTech and, and working in that side of the world, I used to explain to a lot of our employees and contractors that they have this idea that environmental regulations are, you know, protecting this nebulous, you know, people always say bugs and bunnies, right? That's the term people use. And I always say, yes, we're protecting the bugs and bunnies, but we're also protecting us. Like environmental regulations, if you really look at them, are written to protect human health and the environment. And a lot of people have that misunderstanding and they get bristly when they hear environmental regulations. I'm like, these exist because people do get cancer, people do get asthma, people do have, you know, just multitude of complications from en- environmental pollutants. So that's, that's what draw, you know, drew me into biochemistry. Um, but then it just, it didn't click for me. I got the degree, but it just didn't, just what, it wasn't my, it wasn't my thing, um, but water was. So it's, I, I always knew I wanted to do stuff with the environment, but mm-hmm. mining, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> uh, first time I went up to the range, I was like, their hills up here are really weird. They're, they're really structured. <laughs> like, like, I don't understand. And I went swimming. Um, and the boy I was, the boy, I was 22 years old, the boy I was dating. Um, <laughs> no, that's probably fair. Um, <laughs> we would go swimming with our friends to Lake Orbegon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was said Orbegon. So I was thought it was, I just thought it was just a name, Oregon. And I was like, man, this water's freakishly clear and really cold. And I was, I was commenting on it one day, and so I'm like, well, yeah, it's a pit lake. And I'm like, a what? A what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had, no, I had no idea. I had no idea in high school either when it was a big thing. Yeah, I think also in high school I was like, I just thought it was a lake. I was and like, it's yeah. so clear. <laughs> it's just like magically clear. There's no weeds. There's, no, there's nothing in here, but there's big fish. <laughs> So yeah, it's that was my roundabout way of saying no. Mining was not. If I was actually very anti-mining because everything I'd been brought up was that you're Im- impacting the earth. This is bad, and you shouldn't do it. And you know, I, I, my, my credit card actually is still uh, one of the non-governmental organizations, the one of the NGOs. It's still their names on my credit card because that's what I got when I was 20 years old was a credit card through their organization and. I'm not going to change it now because that seems silly. But, um, yeah, it was just, it's been an interesting path. So where do you think you took the change of getting into mining or, like, where it changed your, you know, outlook on it? It took a while. I was trying to think of that on my way down. Um, You know, so I got out of grad school in 2002, moved to the range, and I think it really wasn't honestly until 2006, 2007, where I started, I was working for the environmental consulting firm, and I was working on cleanup of an old mining facility and doing the water testing for that facility. And the big thing is, was working with the companies themselves. And, you know, I I had a chip on my shoulder. I, I had assumptions about the companies based on everything I'd always heard. And then I'm working with these companies, and, you know, we're going through costs of what cleanup takes and, you know, because, like I said, it was an old legacy site, pre-regulations. 
And they just never resisted. It was, well, we need to do this. Yep, we do. Clean it up. Or this was going on. Just do this. And the people from the company, they, they stopped being caricatures to me. They stopped being like this. You know, I joke about, like, Snidely Whiplash, and you guys are probably too young to remember Snidely Whiplash, but it's from one of the cartoons. Oh, my gosh. Comic books, <laughs> video games, and cartoons. <laughs> uh, but Snidely Whiplash is the one who, like, twirls his mustache and ties the girl to the railroad tracks, and he's like, ha and he's got a top hat on. And that's who I kind of thought the mining company people were, <laughs> like, honestly. And then so, like, working with them day in and day out and realizing that what they said behind closed doors was what they were saying in front of closed doors and realizing that they wanted to clean things up and they wanted to invest and they wanted to do things right. It was, it was almost jarring to process that because it just wasn't what I had been told they, who they were. Because they were like the bad guy. They were supposed mm-hmm. to be the bad guy and mm-hmm. they weren't. And when no one was watching, they were still the good guy. And that, that threw me to be honest. And it took a while, and and then at some point in 2008, um, the Taconite mine I was at had an opening for the environmental team, and I thought, well, here I'm always sitting just right off right off the table, right? Like, I'm almost at the table, but I'm, I'm a consultant, so I'm off the table. I'm like, I want to be right at the table. So when they had an opening for the environmental team, I applied for it because I wanted to be at the table, and it was by far the best thing I've ever done. So being like firsthand at the table, is that kind of what changed your And that really changed because it was like, you know, if you, if you want to make a change within industry, sit at the table. Yeah. Be the one making the decision. I mean, everything, everything people do is all decision-based, right? Everything, you know, we all four of us woke up this morning and we made decisions all day, mm-hmm. how we treated people. You know, if we cut someone off in traffic, if we, whatever it was, everything is decision, like decision by decision. And to, it's better to be at that table being one of those decision makers than, in my opinion, than standing away from the table mm-hmm. and wanting those people yeah, wanting, to make different yep. decisions. Like, go, go be the person to make the decision. <clears throat> Plus, it's just really fun to work at a mine because <laughs> you just have cool equipment and... I bet we toured Polymet, and it was just insane how, yeah, like much stuff there is, and how much, how much really goes mm-hmm. into like a mining so operation. So many people, so much equipment, so much. There's so much work. Like when you, I get frustrated when people don't take, like, I say, wait, can tell I spent an entire career in environmental waste management properly, um, but it is. <laughs> You need to respect your products you have because once you've worked at a mine and you've seen how many humans interact with that material to get it into, say, your iPhone, once you realize how many humans have been involved in the creation of any product you have, you ideally should respect it a lot more and you should be less willing to just you know, have that disposable society that we sometimes do. Because it is so many people and it is so much time and so much effort. You know, the Polymet facility, when it gets up and running, it's going to have a lot of people and it's going to have a lot of equipment. And it's just, you look at that investment of time and energy and money to create a product. And how do you not respect better the product that comes out of that? 
and sometimes people don't, and that's not great. Yeah, I was at a, a dinner where John Cherry was actually talking, and when he said, is it 10,000 pounds of copper goes into one windmill turbine? Yeah, it's, a, renew- it's, it's a crazy just, amount. So much, yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy to realize, like, how much renewables come from, like, mining. Yeah, it's... It's insane. And that's, you know, we talk about green energy and where we're going from here. And, you know, we've, we've had a fossil fuel dependent economy that, well, as a lot of us have seen the power go out recently. <laughs> Power's important, right? Right. Electricity is important. Without electricity or without the products that heat our home, it's, it's not great. And, you know, we're going to go from this fossil fuel dependent economy to a minerals dependent one. Because all the renewables are all super mineral intensive. Like you, the solar panels, the windmills, the EVs, the batteries, just it's going to require so many metals. And we have to just change our thinking on that because we've, we've kind of gotten spoiled with coal and natural gas and just assuming that light switches will, will come on when we flip them. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of taken for granted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really not a shame on us. <laughs> I do want to ask a question that's kind of off topic, though. Go for it. You make all these references for video games and comics <laughs> and cartoons. <laughs> what games do you play? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. Now, I, I, I've, isn't a, is a more adult adult now? Um, it's been a few years since I played video games, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I do. Um, part of it is because I really suck at video games, to be honest. <laughs> um, I used to, the gentleman I dated before I dated my now husband was really big into video games, and it was embarrassing how often I'd have to hand him the controller and just say, Can you do this for me? <laughs> <laughs> Can you please get me through this level? Yeah. It was so bad. I think I just like characters and I like stories within them. Yeah. And just some of those games, like even the old school, like Legend of Zelda stuff. Like, really old school. I'm dating myself here. I don't care. <laughs> I have silverish hair coming in and whatever. Aging is, it's a, it's a gift to be able to age, so I'm not going to. But I just love the story aspect of some of those things. It's just, unfortunately, my hand-eye coordination is <laughs> quite terrible. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. Um, no, I would love, the problem is, is I have a very, um, I have one of those personalities that if I started to play those games, it just would be bad. You never get me like, yeah. you have to go to work. <laughs> Through this level. Yeah. I was supposed to sleep. <laughs> I know. That's so I almost have to keep myself in check that way. Um, to get back on to topic, yeah. <laughs> what is Mining Minnesota, if you don't mind me asking? So Mining Minnesota was created in 2006 to kind of corral the different projects together and the different companies that were doing copper nickel exploration and development. So, um, and then, and then the companies that support. So a lot of times what people don't realize is mining is there's concentric rings of mining influence. You have the, like the exploration and development companies. So for us, it's Polymet Tech American. And so Polymet Tech American are looking at joining forces next year to be new range copper nickel. And then Twin Metals, Talon Metals, who was on the show recently, Mm -hmm. Jess is Jess is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I adore her. And um, then Encampment Minerals. And so those are the exploration and development companies. And then you have that next ring out, 
which are the suppliers, vendors, contractors. So they're members as well. Um, so the engineering firms, the contracting firms, um, some cases legal firms, PR firms, a little bit of everybody else that supports those companies. And so it's kind of a coalition of all of us that are working to advance copper nickel mining in the state and to just have a, a greater voice together than we would individually. Mm -hmm. So that's our goal is to get out, do that public outreach and education and just talk to people because there's so many misconceptions. There's so much fear, which I'm okay with people having fear. I'm okay with people questioning. And my role is to hear those fears, respect those fears, and address them. And just talk to people about what copper nickel mining is. And, you know, whether that's, you know, folks like you or just general public, legislators, because they play a very key role in the future of mining in our state. And so just, yeah, my, my job is I get to just talk to people for a living, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what pretty much a typical day would be for you then, is just doing outreach. Doing outreach, um, putting together documents that, you know, kind of pull together information, you know, whether it's on recycling or just the uses or just pulling together data um, and then yeah, just, oops, I hit the <laughs> microphone. Sorry, listeners. Um, <laughs> just just talking to people and seeing what, what people are thinking, you know, what regulations potentially are coming down the line, how projects are going, provide support for projects, whether they need, you know, if there was a public comment period, provide comments for that, um, either written or verbal, whatever's needed, basically. Yeah, there's, there's no typical day, which is why I actually really love this job. It's yeah. been four months of good chaos, I guess I'd say. Do you travel often then? A lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah, but luckily most of it's on the Iron Range. Um, Duluth, a fair amount, and then the Twin Cities, some. Okay. So on the road a lot, which honestly after the whole year of 2020 where I never went further than Hibbing, <laughs> It's yeah. been, been kind of great to actually get on. I'm, I'm still like kind of like getting rid of that like cooped up energy. So, where would you say so mining? Like I know it happens in like Upper Minnesota. Is yeah. there like different like um, like locations like towards the south of the state? So we, it still it's crazy to me. So we have you know the Iron Range obviously, and then the Cuyuna Range was just to the west of Duluth. So like Crosby Ironton, Iron Ton. Um, you don't. I don't want to admit how long it took me to realize what Ironton <laughs> is. Um, but yeah, so we had you know the Iron that we had. They had their own Iron Range there, which is now an amazing mountain bike mm -hmm. park system. Yeah. Um, but really south, you're going to get more silica sands, which were used for fracking and for some other purposes. And then you know you have your gravel operations. We have granite quarries. Down in, like, St. Cloud area has a lot of really amazing granite quarries and some other things like that, but the, the, the big-scale mining, like taconite, and then hopefully us in the future with copper nickel, that's, that's all tucked away in the northeast. Wow. Yeah, so it's we, pretty limited. In min pretty limited space, and it's, when you look at, so the Iron Range, the Misabi, so there's three Iron Ranges, Cuyuna, Misabi, and Vermilion. When you look at those three and realize those were massive, massive iron ore deposits, huge, 
huge. And we had those there on this little narrow strip. Like it, it, the Masabi Range is 100 miles long, but it's only a couple miles wide. It's like this little lightning bolt. And you look at, you had that that was formed 2 billion years ago. And then you have the Duluth Complex and the Tamarack Intrusion, which is the one Talon is. And those were formed 1 billion years ago. And you look at those two and the, the copper nickel, that's, it's one of the world's largest undeveloped copper deposits in the world. So you take the fact that somehow in Minnesota we had this massive iron ore deposit and this massive copper deposit within actually overlapping. In one spot they overlap. And wow. it just blows my mind that we have this, this gift of these resources that our country can use right on top of each other mm-hmm. in one spot. Can you kind of explain like what the process looks like from like permitting all the way to like the environmental restoration yeah. start to finish maybe? Yeah. Um, so. Cause you said a bunch of words that I had no idea. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, please call me out on that. That's the problem is sometimes in mining, we, we get, we're in our little bubble and we really forget that normal people don't like, don't live in this world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and that's sometimes one of the things that rangers, we can be really guilty of, too, is forgetting that not everyone lives in our world because it is everywhere we go, right? We can't go anywhere without seeing something related to mining. So really, it, it all starts with exploration and, you know, f- folks, you know, discovering there's even something to explore. So, you know, we still have a lot of projects in the state that are still in exploration phase. And figuring out, and Jess did a great job of talking about how their deposit uh, was found in the first place. And it's, it's similar for the other projects on how they were found. But, you know, the thing is, when you have this resource under your feet, how do you see what's under your feet? That's, you can't. That's what I've always wondered. Like, how much do you know is, like, there? It's, it's so cool. I mean, the drilling, like, you know, if you talk to Polymet and Twin Metals and, and some of those other folks that have had these massive drilling campaigns, you're, you're poking st- effectively straws into the earth and pulling out these straws and figuring out what's there and then the 3d mapping of trying to say okay this straw showed this and this straw over here showed this and not every straw goes straight down some are they punch in at angles Mm -hmm. and that they have to create this 3d map to figure out what everything looks like underground without it's not like you can just peel it open and go what's (laughs) in there (laughs) It's just this, the modeling they have to do is incredible just to figure out what's where. Um, so they, so that's the first step. Is there, is there a resource? And if so, is it worth even going at it further? What do you, what do you actually have for resource? And so that, that itself can take a long time and, and prices change. You know, it's been fascinating to watch copper nickel. So I started you know, with copper nickel 20 years ago, and nobody was really talking about climate change in EVs and renewables 20 years ago. It was like this fringe thing. And now it's not fringe anymore to have solar panels on your house. Yeah. Like, I can't, it's going to be crazy to see where in 20 years it goes. So prices change, demand changes, socioeconomic, or socio, it's not the right term, geopolitical things change. You know, the Russia-Ukraine thing, you know, that uh, changes things because Russia is a big player in the nickel market. All those things change. So at some point you say, yep, I have this resource. This is worth pursuing further. And then you have your geologists. They go running down there 
world. Geologists do their thing. I love geologists. I shouldn't say this because everybody's like, Lucas, shaking their <laughs> fists at me. <laughs> but geologists do their thing. And then at the same time, you have the environmental folks who have to get rolling. Because what you have to start doing is saying, okay, before we, like, what do what things really look like right now? So baseline monitoring is a really big component of environmental review. Before you know what things are going to look like, you have to know what things look like now. So it's, it's several years of water quality sampling, both surface and groundwater, and air quality, you know, seeing what does the air look like now, what wetlands are there, what flora, fauna, you know, back to the bugs and bunnies, which ones are running around. And, you know, the skies and noise and everything, there's just this massive amount of work that has to be done on understanding today. And then when you start to do that, then you start modeling and trying to figure out, okay, here's our project, here's what we would like to mine, here's how we'd like to do our plant. How does that intersect with that natural system that we've now studied? If we start doing this, where does the groundwater go? How will the groundwater be influenced? You know, is it going to pick up contaminants? Is it going to, what contaminants would those be? Can we treat for that? Just all those different things that you're just starting to work through that process. So environmental review, when people talk about EISs, environmental impact statements, what that is is it's really a deep dive into all those different aspects. Like I said, wildlife and plants and wetlands and water and air. And um, when I say skies, we look at will there be light pollution, things like that. Will there be noise pollution? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, because skies are a big thing. You know, especially up north, you know, Boundary Waters is a dark skies area. And plus we just, we've learned over the years that shooting a lot of lights up into the sky unnecessarily is not good. It throws off bats, it throws off birds, it throws off, you know, just a lot of different um, aspects of nature. So we have to really understand what is our current state? What's the project? How would the project interact with that current state? And what's the actual environmental impact? So that's a, that's a multi-year process. And the key thing with the environmental impact process or statement process that I always want folks to know is the public has the right to be engaged. There's public comment periods. There's public hearings. And the public should be engaged. You know, the general public, they should know when a project's getting proposed, what does that look like? You know, we share air sheds. We share watersheds. We, you know, live downstream, live downwind. We need to know what's being proposed in our backyards. So I always encourage people, go to the public hearings, go to the public events, learn about these projects, ask the, you know, the agencies that are engaged, you know, whether it's DNR, you know, whoever it is, Army Corps of Engineers, ask them every question you want to. You know, we have a very public process in America on purpose because things were not done with the same transparency in the past. And that was, that was bad, just put it bluntly. And so we have the environmental review. So that's separate from permitting. So once you have environmental review, it's just really what are the impacts of the project. And it also takes into effect socioeconomics. So environmental justice, I don't know if, have you folks heard about environmental justice yet from anybody? I don't think so. Mm -mm. So environmental justice is really important to understand so historically in America, we have seen where 
industrial projects, and, and municipalities have been guilty of this too, have a lot of times placed projects with an environmental impact either near uh, socioeconomically, um, you know, like low-income areas, or actually the reservations are considered environmental justice areas now. And it's just saying, hey, historically industry has purposely gone where people weren't really organized and able to stand up for themselves. And environmental justice recognizes that that's not cool. I didn't know that was called environmental justice. But yeah. So yeah. environmental justice is saying no more. And, you know, for mining, it's a little different. The ore bodies are where they are. And yeah. so you can't mine something somewhere. The ore bodies are where they are. But you also want to make sure that people, you know, that may not have the ability to hire a legal team to fight a project or to fight for better regulations, you want to make sure that they're being looked out for. So that's a whole concept of environmental justice. And Minnesota's really been pioneers for recognizing that that happens. And so that's, you know, one of the big things that you look at in environmental impact is making sure that those, how a company's going to be held accountable is the same no matter where it's located. You know, if you put it in Minnetonka or YZ, it would have the exact same that it does wherever it is. Um, so you look at socioeconomic, too, because jobs and what the uh, jobs mean, you know, that changes, that there's benefits to that. So environmental impact statement, a lot of people only think of the negatives, but it is also the positives of projects. So you get through that phase, and then you have permitting. So permitting is really the nitty-gritty, and it's very, like, this is what's allowed to come out of your stacks. This is what's allowed to come out of your, you know, discharges from, you know, weather water. This is how many wetland acres you are going to impact, and this is how many acres you're going to mitigate, and this is where you're going to mitigate. And so it's really, permits are really the nitty-gritty, like, you live by them daily. I just can't believe we're only at the permitting stage. <laughs> no, it takes, I know, sorry. Blah, 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 blah. No, I'd rather you get um, be thorough, though. It's a really thorough process, and every step includes public input, which is, which is critical. And, you know, it's not just public input. So the tribal consultation is actually a separate entity. The tribes have their own comment periods that they get because we have tribal consultation, MOUs, memorandums of understanding between federal and tribal governments and then state and tribal governments. So there's so much public input, which is really good because humans need to, like I said, understand what's happening in their backyard. And so I always encourage people to get involved. So once you get through permitting, what we've seen with PolyMed is we've had litigation. So that's not a part of the official steps in the process, but litigation's critical and that it allows people, if there was something they are concerned about, they can um, file a case against, it's actually against the state or the federal government. So PolyMet's cases right now are not against PolyMet, they're against the DNR or the MPCA, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. So there's litigation, and that's just in case that, you know, it allows the public, if they feel something was overlooked, it allows them another chance to say, time out, Let's, we need to look at this project again. So those things are all put in place to protect the public um, from, from what industry could be capable of. And like I said, part of that is based on in history. And so it's just something the companies recognize and we work through. Um, 
so then once you're permitted, everything's good to go. You got your, you know, go ahead. Then we can actually construct a mining operation and start mining, which is the fun stuff. And like I said, I'm biased. I, I, I love mining. It's really cool. So I grew up, like I said, down in Barnum and grew up on a small farm. And, you know, it, the best, the best yet somehow the worst days of my childhood uh, were baling hay. So if you've ever had an opportunity to bale hay, um, it's, you know, you, you never, you never do it. There's no, there's like never any cool days in the summer where you're like, oh, it's, it's, you know, 65 degrees and a little bit breezy. We're going to make hay. It's always like, no, it's 90 <laughs> and like 95% humidity. And, but what I always loved about growing up on a farm and baling hay was that you bust your butt all day. End of the day, you're like, of course I was allergic to hay. That didn't help. It's like oh, your arms, no. yeah. arms are just bright. You, uh, he's like, yeah. You know, your arms would just be all itchy and you're just like blowing your nose constantly. But you get done and you'd be like, you'd see all the hay up in the hayloft. And you're like, yeah, like we're, we're, we're getting ready for winter. And it was just like the satisfying feeling. Well, working at a mine was like that. You know, working at a taconite mine and, and seeing the pellets go off in the trains, you know, every 18 hours. You're like, yeah, you're going to go grow up to be steel. Like, you yeah. just have this, like, <laughs> right? You just have this, like, great feeling of, like, we we did, we created something. You are a yeah. part of something that will yeah. be around. Or yeah. you, who knows what it will be. But, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, I know every time I see a vehicle, I'm always like, there's a good chance yeah. that it came from the Iron Range. That, that steel, you know, I say grew up. I know it sounds weird. Just roll with it. Um and so, you know, that, so you have that mining process that's, that's great, but it is a finite resource. There's, you know, I like to say recycling makes a finite resource infinite. You know, steel right now is the most recycled product in the world. Like, everybody recycles steel. And copper, I think, is pretty close behind that. And so, you know, so you get done with the mining. You know, you have whatever the, your mine life is. You've tapped it out. And then you get to... St- figure out, well, you've, with copper nickel, we're going to figure it out way before we ever start mining. What does this look like upon closure? You know, in the old days, they didn't have to do that. The mining regulations, this blows my mind, so fully dating myself. So I was born in 1978, and tail end of Gen Xer here, and (laughs) Minnesota didn't create their iron ore permit to mine rules until 1980. So I'm, I don't ever think I'm that old. And then non-ferrous, so copper-nickel, came even after that. And so you look at it and you say, wow, pre-1980, there were no re- regulations for reclamation. None. So for how, how to restore the land. That's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I'm, okay, so you guys are like, yeah, 1980s. Are <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave in there, but like, she's old. Um, <laughs> She's talking Legend of Zelda, and she actually had an old school Nintendo once upon a time that her brother never let her play. And um, so, you know, so then nowadays when you, like the Polymet Project and Talon and Twin and all those companies have had to figure out what does this look like upon closure? What does reclaiming the land mean? Because the, the reality of it is, is you have a hole in the ground. Yeah. You have a hole either... On surface, you know, like polymed is going to be open pit. Or talon, as they talked about, would be underground. You have a hole in the ground. It will never be what it was before 
but it's it's that's okay. We've we've you know we've harvested the rock, and now the big goal is to not make a problem for someone down the line. You know what does that pit lake look like? What do you know if there's going to be stockpiles? How are they shaped? How are they formed? Are they revegetated? Do they blend in? You know, we used to have the wedding cake style stockpiles. You've seen if you go yep. up on the range. And, you know, some companies aren't doing that anymore. They're looking at, you know, different ways of creating their stockpiles, you know, doing more revegetation, just like I said, shaping the land differently. And that's something that 40 plus years ago, people just didn't think about. It was just a different time. And so now we get to, you know, work with the communities and say, what do you want this to be? Yeah. And in and, and some cases, the community actually, it's it potentially state of Minnesota land. And so working with the state of Minnesota saying, what do you want this to be? And so it's, it's kind of cool to be able to ask those questions and figure out what does a community want. Or in turn, they want something like Cuyuna, like yeah. the mountain bike trails and a lake and something for them to do outside so the redhead trails you know are same thing that's an old mine pit and waters are you know like gorgeous turquoise and that might be something that we do with a future site Mm -hmm. and we get to have a say in it which is as somebody who lives up there i kind of enjoy yeah i can't remember do you guys remember what that golf course was over by polymet oh the giant's ridge Ridge, yeah. ridge yeah yeah we ate lunch over there and that was a pit mine yeah before and it's beautiful over there Mm. it's gorgeous and you know that's what we should be you know how do we how do we have that going in the future we don't want to create a liability for the next generation yeah we need to be thinking what are we leaving behind for you and because it's not just enough to get the metals and it's not even just enough to not pollute it really is we need to leave this as something you can utilize or that's just pretty to look at (laughs) Yeah. Because sometimes it's okay for things to be pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very pretty up there. Yeah. I love, I love the Iron Range. It's, it's, it's just a really, it's just a unique place. And the history is insane. And the people are amazing. And it's just to, you know, realize, you know, iron mining started in the late 1800s. And, you know, coming all the way through, and then the potential of the copper-nickel continuing. And you just look at this little tiny corner of Minnesota contributing that much to this country, and it's it's just kind of it's cool to be a part of that. Yeah. With that being said, where do you see, like, yourself or, you know, Minnesota within five years? Or, I mean, mining Minnesota. It'll be interesting to see. I think, you know, just even what I've seen in the last few years is folks folks are waking up to the impact their lives have on the world, like the impact that they're purchasing, ha- you know, what they're purchasing, what they're using. You know, we've really seen food, recognition of food and understanding where your food comes from. We're seeing in the fashion Clearly, I'm not very fashionable. But we're seeing in the fashion world that people are saying fast fashion is not cool. Like, we need to start buying clothes that are well-made, well-maintained. And, you know, we're just, we're starting to get so much more aware of, I really think we're 
we're going to get there in the next five years with metals. You know, we saw the supply chain disruption where everybody also knew where toilet paper came <laughs> from. And that was good for us. Like I said, we really take stuff for granted. And shame on us for that. And I think metals, you know, as we transition away from fossil fuels and we, we turn to the renewables or whatever source we end up looking at for energy, I, I think in the next five years there's going to be more of an awakening that this comes from somewhere and there's going to be a hole in the ground somewhere. And we are going to want to know that that hole in the ground was created ethically. And just like I said, we're, we're changing for fashion on that. We've, we've gone that way with food. And we need to get there for our metals because we're using metals nonstop. Because it's not just, you know, it's not just renewables. You know, snow plows being out. A lot of them are stainless steel bla- uh, plows on those snow plows. And my wedding ring is stainless steel, and that requires nickel. And so all of this, you know, nickel's everywhere. And I think we're going to see in the next five years people wake up to that and say, yeah, I don't know how comfortable I am anymore getting metals from somewhere that has no regulation. And we, we say that a lot, and people hear that message from us a lot. But I think in the next five years it's really going to start to sink in. And, and people are going to start demanding it, um, even though it does come with an increased cost. Amer- like, you know, you look at steel. American steel costs more than Chinese steel. But guess what? American steel was typically union and had to meet environmental regulations. And the energy they used came from more regulated industries. And so there's a reason there's a premium you pay. And I think we're going to get that same way with copper nickel where we say, yeah, we have to pay more if it comes from America, but there's a reason that we're paying more. And I think we're going to hit that, that moral, ethical feeling in, in, as Americans, hopefully, in the next five years. And where I am, who knows? You know, like <laughs> I said, six months ago, I didn't think I'd be here. So <laughs> I make no predictions other than I just hope I'm still, I'm, I'm just still hopefully rallying for this industry because... I really believe in it. Yeah, wow. I'm like, you taught me so much just sitting here <laughs> listening. I'm just like mind blown. But I think you said it absolutely right with like the next five years, how people will come to that realization where did their products come and like demanding it. Because before I started like the podcast and getting yep. involved in industry, I paid no attention to where I didn't even know where pipelines were. Yeah. yeah. And then now I'm like, wow, it's crazy to see what really is in your backyard. and Especially the pipelines because yeah. you're so close to Wrenchall here with the northern natural gas mm-hmm. tanks. Um, and, yeah, when you look at that map of where pipelines really run in this state and country, they're everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, we have natural gas on the Iron Range. It feeds a lot of the taconite plants is how they – um, indurate or heat up their pellets. That's a whole different process. I don't work for the iron industry. I just, I also support them. Um, <laughs> and my husband's a steel worker. So oh. <laughs> uh, but, you know, nobody ever, you know, and so we have a lot of homes heated by natural gas on the range and nobody's really ever asking how that natural gas 
got to the range. As long as they can yeah. turn it on. Turn it on and homes are heated and we're all good. Yep. And we should be asking how they got there. And we should be asking who did the work. And that's where I always encourage people, if industry concerns you, go work for industry. Be, be the person who's running the shovel. Be, you know, the big shovels, the big excavators. Um, shovel sounds like I'm just like digging. Um, <laughs> be the person who is setting up a blast pattern. Be the person who's, you know, maybe you're the finance person. Maybe you're the accountant. Maybe you're HR. But, but you being in that role and caring will make the industry better. So don't, you know, don't think that if you really care about the environment, you don't belong in the industry. Exact opposite. You are 100% who should be in the industry. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of folks we want are people who do question and who do challenge and who do want to do things better than they were done the day before. Um, I always encourage people to go into industry. I definitely agree that if people have environmental concerns, they should definitely be more involved because I was also like, oh, we don't need a mine in Minnesota. We don't need pipelines, but... Like after sitting, sitting around and like thinking about where all of my stuff comes from, yep, it's it's just insane to think about how much we depend on pipelines and mining and just all all the things that are painted as bad that we depend on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's just interesting to think about when you actually sit down and just think where you're at. Yeah. And- <laughs> And, you know, the thing with mining is it can be done poorly. Mm-hmm. Like, I will never say that. It is always 100% amazing yeah. because it really does come down to the people that are doing the work and where that work's being done and how it's permitted and how it's regulated and who's overseeing it. And because it is just a series of decisions, and it's, it's little decisions. And I, I wouldn't have seen that had I not been at the iron mine as long as I was where, you know, I would get phone calls in the middle of the night if there was an oil spill. And, you know, it's small spill. So any hydraulic fluid spilled on the ground in Minnesota, you have to call the, the duty officer, any quantity. So you could have a quart of hydraulic fluid pop out of equipment, and if it hits the ground, you clean it up right away, but you still have to call the Minnesota duty officer. So when that would happen, I would get a phone call as the environmental manager, and it always would just – I never could get over the fact that I would get phone calls at 2, 3 in the morning with someone saying, hey, this spilled – we got it cleaned up, just letting you know. And, you know, at some point I said, you guys don't have to keep calling me. <laughs> like, if it's all cleaned up and reported, we're good. Um, but they always would want me to know. And, you know, what, what, I, what always really stood out to me for that is that, in theory, I would never have known, right? A, a small hydraulic spill, I, I would never have known. But those folks working there knew that, you know, through their training that this is what they needed to do. And they would do it. And so it's seeing, like, that integrity and that decision-making, that's what will make our industry stronger, is it's those individuals who, you know, it's kind of that definition of integrity, right? Like, what do you do when no one's watching? Right. And so having folks do that stuff and, and knowing the weather conditions that they worked in, you know, well, we just had this big snowstorm, right? I would get calls during snowstorms like this that's, you know, a hydraulic line popped and they had a spill and they cleaned it up. And I was like, wow, you're, 
you're dealing with really terrible weather right now and mm-hmm. you're still doing this. And so that's why I have faith in this industry and faith in the people is because of that experience. And it, but it really is a decision-making and, you know, I obviously in mining, but, you know, pipelining, I have family connection to it. And, you know, my brother's a pipeliner and because of, I know his ethics and integrity, I feel differently about pipelining than I would otherwise. But it is about those relationships and people and who's in those. And that's, you know, not everyone has that benefit of having, you know, their big brother or having, you know, in my case, my husband as a steel worker. And I always just try to remember that. And I also remember people didn't grow up on farms and didn't work around equipment and didn't work around, you know, the earth and all of that. And just we all have different backgrounds we bring to our lives and you just have to respect that. I, I took a trip to New York City for the first time last December, which was a super cool time to go to New York City, to like the pre-Christmas mm-hmm. and the Rockefeller and all that. But I was out there, and, you know, the only green you have is Central Park. Yeah. Right? That's the only green. And I just remember going out there and thinking, if this was what I had grown up in, if I had grown up in Manhattan, and my world was skyscrapers and sidewalks and subways... And someone told me that there was a potential of a mine in pristine northeastern Minnesota that, you know, was in the Lake Superior watershed or the the Boundary Waters watershed. How would I feel about it? Like it really, and just having that moment of just realizing people don't have that same background that I do. And if I was them and that was, had been my world, I would be scared because I wouldn't have known what mining was. I'd have no exposure to it other than what I Google and it's just recognizing folks bring their concerns from a different place. I just think is really important for those of us who are in the industry just to acknowledge that. Um, we don't always do that. But it's nice that you guys are, that you guys understand that you guys don't do that. So you're making the steps to do that. I think that's, I think that says a lot. We're trying, right? It's easy to get defensive. Mm-hmm. Like you're, right, your first response is, why don't you like mining? <laughs> We're awesome. You should love us. We're all using metal. Yep. Time out. <laughs> but it's, I mean, anybody who does anything that you love, you get defensive if people challenge it, right? Or, you know, you think about, like, farmers. All these years, people challenge farmers, and you're like, well, I bet you're really liking your food, aren't you? Mm-hmm. But you like your eggs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, okay. Now let's take, let's peel back some layers here as to why people are concerned about farms, why people are concerned about animals. And, you know, just just seeing where people are coming from is so important instead of just yeah. getting defensive and just being like, well, you, you like your cell phone, don't you? They do, but they're also concerned. And they have the right to be concerned. And, you know, whether it's agriculture or mining or any any industry, really, anything, people have not always done it great in the past, right? The Clean Water Act just turned 50 this year 1972 was in the clean water act that's not that long ago that we regulated what comes out of pipes mm-hmm. into the water 50 years yeah that is crazy that's like yesterday i don't want to call it my big brother but he's 50 as well and i think he's pretty young so when i look at it and i'm like your whole life you've had the clean water act but you're not you're not that old Right. And so you look at what we did pre-1972, and, you know, a lot of those folks that are concerned about mining, those are the same people that got us a Clean Water Act. Those are the same people that fought for a Clean Air Act. 
those are the same people who fought for, in Minnesota, Wetland Conservation Act. And we need those people that, that are calling attention to environmental things. Because at the end of the day, mining is going to, it's moving, it's taking the earth and turning it into a product. But that earth will never be the same. You can reclaim it, you can restore it, you can protect it, but it's still not the same. And it's important to have those discussions on what that looks like. And it's important to recognize that it's, those concerns are legitimate. And because, like I said, you can do it poorly. We don't want to do it poorly. So let's talk about what doing it right looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a super awesome thing that, you know, everybody is doing nowadays is ask, uh, trying to get that recognition and pushing it out and letting the people know and have a decision in that too. They should. I mean, we, we share the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why when we talk about environmental impact, I think it's important to talk about global. You know, like mercury is a, a concern in Minnesota. And the reality is most mercury in our waters didn't come from Minnesota. 90% came from out of state. You know, it's the MPCA, Minnesota Pollution, I'm trying not to use acronyms, Minnesota <laughs> Pollution Control Agency. You know, their numbers show the vast majority of mercury came from out of state, if not out of country. I was actually going to say, I was reading something about how, like, mining from China, it, like, kicks up the air pollution there, and it carries it from the jet stream all the way to the U.S. Yeah, so that's amazing. Mercury will last a year in the atmosphere before dropping out. Wow. It's insane. And so you have the mercury that comes from, and I'll, I'll just say it's from burning coal. And, you know, in Minnesota, we have very strict mercury controls on our coal power plants that we have in Minnesota now. And, but other countries don't. And so, you know, when they're, when they're doing that, it's getting up in the atmosphere, it's coming over. And then what makes Minnesota unique is that in our wetlands that we have next to all of our lakes and rivers, you know, we have all these wetlands. Unfortunately, what happens in Minnesota is when that mercury comes down in the rain and our wetlands, there are bacteria that are converting that mercury it's into what's called methyl mercury. So methyl is a carbon and four hydrogens. And so it's that methyl mercury is actually the type of mercury that can get brought into the food chain. So that's where you start getting where the tiny little plankton are eating, you know, cons- getting it in their systems and then the fish and then the bigger fish and then the big fish and then us. Um, or unfortunately, bald eagles will f- have seen with uh, mercury poisoning. Um, and every, you know, and then we eat the fish and we have... Mercury um, or fish consumption limits, if you look on the Department of Health. And so that's why it's because we have that unique thing where we have all these wetlands. And in those wetlands, we don't, you run out of oxygen in those wetlands. And then so that type of bacteria are able to take the mercury and convert it into a form that gets brought up into the food chain. So we kind of have this like not ideal situation for mercury when it comes to Minnesota. So it's, it's not good. And it's, like you said, it is China, India, and a lot of those other sources that we have no control over. You know, I'm just thinking, like, typical ice fishing. Crappies, you can pretty much go to town on. They're low on the food chain. And so mercury does a thing where it's called bioaccumulate. It never goes away. So if you're a crappie, you have the mercury in you that from consuming your plankton that you've eaten, the zooplankton. Um, But then the walleye... They are not just eating one crappie, right? The walleye's eating all these crappies. 
And all of that mercury and all of those crappies get into that walleye. And so it just kind of keeps, so it bioaccumulates. So mm. it's like 10 crappies, all their mercury is now right. in that walleye. And the problem with mercury is that it, it's in the muscle. So it's in the part you eat. So you can't cut it out. You can't cook it out. It's an element. And so it, it just builds up. So uh, people who eat a lot of fish, even men, if they eat a lot of walleyes in Minnesota, actually should be careful with how much they eat. And you can get tested for it. So it is possible to do a hair sample or a blood sample and see if you have excess mercury in your system. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what happens to mercury when it's in your body? Eventually, so you do excrete some with your natural Mm. processes, but um, it can accumulate and it's a neurotoxin. So if you were to get enough, so the classic story is the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. If you remember, the Mad Hatter was not so, you know, he had issues. And so that it's crazy because the Hatters of the old days, they would take the beaver pelts, and to make the beaver pelts pliable for hats, they would dip them in what was called mercuric nitrate. So it was pretty much just mercury, um, to, and it would make the pelts pliable. And so they would just have their hands in that stuff all day mm. and making those hats and Thought nothing of it. It's like, like I always say, the old, the old times were not so great. <laughs> um, and so they, their brains would actually start deteriorating. Wow. And when oh they would gosh. do autopsies, they would actually have holes in their brain from the mercury. So That's it's crazy. It's scary. And so it's, you know, obviously we're not playing in mercury. But you think <laughs> about some, like, talk to my parents' generation and they used to play with mercury in schools. Right. Like Minnesota did this huge program of getting the mercury out of the drains because mercury is really heavy. So in all the old chemistry labs, they would just pour it down the drains. Well, you know, drains have that little U on the bottom, and the mercury would just settle there. So they <laughs> had to, like, clean out a lot of those systems. They actually wow. had a – Minnesota uh, PCA had a dog that was trained to sniff out mercury in schools. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was awesome. And so he would go and, like, hey, there's some mercury here, and they'd get it out. And That's crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. But it's so imp- – I mean, it's a neurotoxin. It's bad. And so we, you know, we have to be careful with what we eat. We In our family, we um, – my husband's a huge fisherman, and he – you know, we, we kind of limit our walleye. We tend to be kind of a crappie family just because that's – because he's married to a nerd like me. <laughs> it's something that, you know, we try to be careful of. We don't eat really big walleyes. You know, those are, mm-hmm. send, you know, put those back um, for many reasons, right? Fish, just fish, fisheries health in general, mm-hmm. but also just our health. So. Well, you've given me a lot to think about. Sure. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's like I'm not having fish tonight. <laughs> you can have fish. You just limit how many. Small walleyes are better. That's all we had last night, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we had some walleye last night. I love walleye. It's it's awesome. It's just like I said, you have to just limit how much you have. Well, I think that's all the questions I had for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's very informative. It was. Thank you, Julie. I'm, thanks. I'm glad you glad you think so. I think you. Um, you portray a new outlook on definitely you know it mm-hmm. spreads <laughs> especially but. with like the environmental concerns mm-hmm. and stuff you've really given a totally new outlook good 
and the morality of mining was my yeah big takeaway and like not to sound like offensive to everybody else or or who does this but like you explained it like so well and like Mm -hmm. for like me to understand if that makes sense I always say you mean normal people it was fun (laughs) yeah Yeah, too (laughs) like you made it fun to listen to yeah thank you so much I really appreciate this opportunity I just people need to talk about this Mm -hmm. it's our backyard definitely well thank you for taking the time and driving in day three of this crazy (laughs) snow down to cloquet (laughs) i know i looked out the window briefly and i was like oh no not (laughs) no not more (laughs) snow we're good we're good hopefully it's done soon my husband's never gonna get on the lake this winter (laughs) i just i don't (laughs) nope He's going to have to find a new hobby. I told him the other day he could take up crocheting, but that, oh. that did not go over well. Oh. All right, guys. Well, well, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. Bye, everyone.